Today's episode is brought to you by the movie Incarnate. From the producers of Insidious and The Purge comes a new kind of exorcism. Incarnate follows a scientist with the ability to enter the subconscious minds of the possessed who must save a young boy from the grips of a demon with powers never seen before while facing the horrors of his past. The Dark Knight's Aaron Eckhart and Game of Thrones' Carice Van Houten star in Incarnate, directed by Brad Payton of San Andreas fame in association with I Am Global, Bloomhouse, and WWE. Incarnate also stars David Mazouz of Gotham and Cat. Catalina Sandino Moreno from Maria, full of grace. Not only is Incarnate an entirely new take on the exorcism genre, but it's also the only wide-release horror film of the holiday season. So grab a friend and see Incarnate in theaters on December 2nd. Hi, I'm Eric Olson, and welcome to another eerie edition of the Lineup Podcast. With me, as always, is Dr. Clarissa Cole, forensic psychologist. So great to speak with you, Clarissa. We have quite a topic for this podcast. Is any spiritual dilemma more frightening or fraught with baggage than possession? Just imagine if this is the real thing. Having your body and immortal soul taken over by an evil essence. It really is about as dangerous and frightening as things get. Oh, I agree. I, I can't even imagine. I mean, and there have been stories about possessions for as long as written history, as far as I can tell. There have. You're, you're absolutely right. And we see it in art and, and we read it in plays where people are no longer themselves. All right. The case we're going to focus on today is that of Roland Doe. And the Roland Doe case led to one of the most famous supernatural novels and films of all time, The Exorcist. In 1949, a teenager distraught over the death of a beloved aunt attempted to contact her spirit via uh, the dreaded Ouija board. Mm -hmm. It's the, the Ouija board again, my friend. I will not touch one of those things. I'm telling the truth. Won't touch them. Uh, keep away. And again, as we always say, there's nothing magical about the actual physical board. It's the intention that's the problem. It's the intention that you are welcoming in unknown entities from across the spiritual divide. Think how dangerous that can be if the wrong entity gets a hold of your invitation. And that's the conduit, right? The, the Ouija board is like the you telephoning them or Skyping them and say, hey, get, give me a call. Exactly. It's the tool. And it's the tool itself, like other dangerous, potentially dangerous tools like guns or whatever. No, they themselves do not do the act. The act mm -hmm. is committed by humans. But using the tool is what opens things up and it focuses the person's attention. It's a lot like witchcraft, assuming witchcraft actually works. I don't know, but assuming that it does, it's the intention and having objects to a 
fix that attention on in order to magnify that intention. And I think that's what's going on here. That's what he did then, right? After she died, he just picked up a Ouija board and said, hey, I got to get a hold of her. He got on it. And one of two things happened. His attempts conjured genuine dark forces, perhaps demonic in nature, which preyed upon the boy and his family, or the boy, perhaps unwittingly, perpetuated one hell of a hoax. Why don't we look at it for a moment from the psychological point of view? As I understand it, there have been a number of psychological conditions throughout history that have actually been treated using exorcism. Oh, yeah. And actually, that still happens. That still happens in other countries. I think that it still happens in countries that have been industrialized to, to a certain extent because it, it has to do with the individuals that are suffering, what they believe in, and who they go to to get treatment. And if your first line of, of treatment is to go to a spiritual leader, I think you have a, a higher likelihood of being diagnosed as, as somebody that is possessed. Like, um, like in ancient civilizations, for, you know, long before psychology existed as a discipline, like in Egypt, China, Babylon, Greece, uh, they believed that anybody exhibiting symptoms of any sort of psychopathology were possessed by bad spirits. And the only way to exercise those bad spirits was with these elaborate ritualized ceremonies that involved a lot of times direct physical attacks on the sufferer's body in an attempt to force out those demons. And that happened for a long, long time through history, uh, like for schizophrenia, for instance. Now, schizophrenia is one of the worst of the psychotic disorders. And, and as a person starts to experience symptoms, they're hearing voices potentially, they're seeing things maybe that aren't there, you know, having hallucinations, active delusions, and, and their thoughts are getting very jumbled. It's really hard for them to have a coherent thought. So they look like their personality is completely changing. And this can happen in short order or it can take many years. But whatever, you know, is happening to that person, it really looks like they're being taken over or they're listening to things outside of themselves. So schizophrenia was a, a very popular disorder to treat using exorcism back in the day. Um, epilepsy was another one because with an epileptic, the seizures that occur can can strike someone that believes in the, in these spiritual practices that their body is experiencing a hostile takeover from a demonic spirit. I mean, it makes perfect sense. Um, the same thing with like a, a traumatic brain injury where your personality changes substantially because your brain has been injured. But the, the thing that gets me now, uh, this, this one just, uh, it kind of even hurts to think about another disorder that was treated with exorcism is depression. And, that just seemed weird to me because I thought, my gosh, you know, depression, that's that's something that most people in their lifetime will experience. Most people throughout the course of a normal lifespan will experience a clinical depression at some point or another. It's completely normal. And usually within six months to a year, these symptoms go away. But back in the day when all they had was these spiritual beliefs, they thought that depression was actually a person struggling with a demonic oppression. So not quite possessed yet. You know, the spirit hadn't completely taken over, but they were experiencing an oppression and the spirit needed to be cast out. So the depressed people were also treated with exorcism. 
That's very disturbing. You're absolutely right. I mean, I don't know anyone who hasn't at least glibly used the term, oh, I'm feeling depressed. We we kind of toss that term around. But even clinical depression, yeah, I mean, think about it. It's, it's kind of like saying, well, you're not allowed to be sad. You're not allowed to not be chipper and jolly. And let's face it, for most people, for most of human history, life was really difficult. And if you – if you were inclined to uh, uh, analyzing your situation and actually thinking about it, uh, often it would be the logical thing to become depressed or what we would now call depressed. So imagine having to deal with the notion that you're not just sad, you're not just looking rather realistically at your living situation and coming to terms with it, but that you are in an internal struggle with an oppressive outside demonic being and that probably was not terribly helpful oh god i mean i can't imagine how terrible that would be to think that you're you know you're struggling with this sadness anyway and this deep dark cloud that doesn't seem to be lifting and then you have these church elders or you know other spiritual leaders telling you oh yeah that's not just you feeling sad you're actually being oppressed by a demon right now i mean it, it just it blows my mind that these people had to go through this rigorous process with these you know, spiritual leaders of an exorcism, which, like I was saying, could be, you know, that could be through torture, flogging, starvation. All of these things happened historically. Drown to try the to witch. Yes, exactly right. I mean, it's, it is horrifying when you think about the history of exorcism and, and all the diseases that exist that we know exist now that have nothing to do with any outside entity. If the witch drowns, she's not a witch. She, <laughs> well, she's dead now. She's innocent. But but dead. All right. Well, back to the case of Roland Doe, which obviously is a a pseudonym to protect the innocent. Either way, whether this was a psychological or a genuinely spiritual issue, the family was soon plagued by strange phenomena. Not knowing what else to do, the boy's parents – eventually took him first to his own Lutheran minister, and then eventually he ended up in St. Louis and came under the wing of Catholic priests who performed a series of very intense and at times violent exorcisms. The victim of the alleged possession remained anonymous, as we've already said. He was called Roland Doe, and we do know that Roland was born in or around 1935, which would have made him about 14 years old at the time of the exorcisms. Now, why is it, Clarissa, that so many sufferers of presumed demonic oppression or possession are adolescents? Man, talk about a tough question. Like, it was really hard for me to come with come up with any sort of actual statistics on this, you know, the, the statistics of who have been exercised. But, you know, so I, I'm not sure that that actually is the case. But if I do accept that to be true, that they're adolescents, I look at the makeup of the family. So a teenager usually is still living at home and is heavily under the influence of what the family believes. And in Roland Doe's case, he was brought up in a German Lutheran family and his aunt was an avid spiritualist. So Speaking as a confirmed Lutheran myself, by the way, they spoke German in my grandmother's church. That's Lutheran. I, it's Lutheran. I can tell you that if something's going wrong, it's the work of the devil, plain and simple. So, you know, medical or psychiatric diagnoses are not generally thought of as the most likely culprit at all. So instead, pastoral counseling and praying are the primary modes of combating those issues that seem foreign or disagreeable. 
So I'm guessing that little Roland may have been influenced by all of this. He didn't have exposure to other things. So even if his behavior was medically or psychologically mediated, it's probably likely that his family chose to air their concerns to a man of the faith rather than a man of medicine. And just like what you just said, that's reportedly what occurred. His family went to their pastor, Luther Miles Schultz, for answers, and he observed the boy for one night and came to the conclusion after less than 24 hours, I might add, that a Catholic priest should be summoned. So, but it's worth mentioning that Pastor Schultz was himself very interested in parapsychology and the occult. And it's notable because it seems as though no other options were sought out at this time, indicating that everybody involved with this poor 14-year-old kid we're viewing his case through one lens, that of Roland's behavior being caused by something spiritual rather than anything else. Very interesting. It's such a deep and bizarre sort of thing to imagine, because what if you're wrong? What if you get it wrong in either direction? What if you're mm -hmm. assuming it's spiritual, but it is, in fact, psychological? And what if you're assuming it's psychological and this is worse, I suppose, when it really is, in fact, spiritual and that the person, the child truly is possessed. Now we're talking about your very mortal soul and life are in peril. Of course, the person's life can certainly be imperiled with psychological issues. But but nonetheless, it seems even worse when you're dealing with the worst possible spiritual outcome to these things. Oh, I totally that see that's why something like a, what what I would call in my profession a multidisciplinary team is so important. You you want people from different outlooks and you know in the prison system I work routinely with, you know, you obviously you have the the police officers, but I, you know, so the police officers are there to provide discipline and safety. And they're looking at it through the lens of he's acting out just because he's a criminal, right? I'm looking at it through the lens of mental illness. You've got the pastoral counselors of which they always have the, you know, um, the chaplains. They're looking at it through a spiritual lens. I've got social workers, psych techs. There's all these people looking at it on one team through their own lens and we talk to each other and ideally we can all eventually agree on what's causing it. And unfortunately that's not what happened with Roland. No, it certainly did not. It became quite a spiritual war. We mentioned he moved to St. Louis, traveled to St. Louis where William S. Bodern, an associate of college church was given permission by the archbishop to perform additional exorcism. After the priest and another priest visited the family at home and observed the boy's bed shaking and objects moving on their own, not to mention Roland speaking in a guttural voice unlike his own and exhibiting an aversion to sacred objects. One exorcism was attended by at least three priests, including Walter Halloran, who would later report that various wounds appeared on Roland's body. Some of these lacerations reportedly resembled words or demonic faces. At one point, Roland attacked Halloran violently, breaking his nose. Other accounts attributed a frightening degree of strength to young Roland and claimed that he spoke in perfect Latin, although the boy was unschooled in the language. Some sources state that at least one of these exorcisms was observed by no less than 48 people, nine of them Jesuits. Wow, that's quite a crowd. Whether they're like sitting in a stadium or what? 
that's crazy. You know what? That's crazy to think about. Like, how is that treatment for somebody that is sick? I mean, regardless if it's psychological or spiritual, that's just a show. See, to me, that's exploiting a patient, especially a, a minor. He was in his teens. I, I can't even. OK, let me just put this out there. That would not happen now. It would not happen well, now. I, I'm envisioning this surgical theater, you know, where the yes. students are up above, around, circling around what's going on below and peering down at the proceeds. Holy cat. That, wow. Yeah. All right. Well, fortunately, Roland Doe survived the sessions. What became of him afterwards is anyone's guess, though most people involved in the case say that he lived a normal life from that point forward and had no recollection of what had happened to him during his possession. Now, this brings up another point. All this was going on within a family context. Imagine that. What are your thoughts on the psychological aspects of all of this activity, this frenetic spiritual activity on the family? I can't I cannot even imagine. I mean, Roland was an only child, but he, you know, he had both parents alive. And so there's no doubt in my mind that the impact of such a ritual being done to a member of your family, especially your child, would be really traumatic. And and he underwent this ritual several times. So, you know, and the ritual itself is secretive. You know, there's Hollywood portrayals, but the actual event is usually pretty shrouded in mystery. And only, you know, a few of those that are chosen by the church generally are allowed to perform them. So, you know, on one hand, the entire family might feel like pariahs. However, on the other hand, I mean, you know, this is where my psych brain gets engaged. There's something very special about being picked for this. And a dysfunctional family might feed on it and encourage the victim to act even more bizarre in order to garner more attention. So it's a double-edged sword. And in Roland Doe's case, it's unclear. Without interviews or accounts from the actual family, it's impossible for me to know for sure. But I do know that Roland was shuttled around quite a bit, and he met with many different specialists. So this seems to indicate that his family was very open to Roland being viewed as a spectacle, rather than shielding him for those who could have exploited him. Very, very interesting. All right. Well, most of us know what happened next. Fortunately, uh, apparently, Roland turned out okay and had a more or less normal life. I, what do you think about the notion that he wouldn't or didn't or couldn't remember any of this? Do you think that's truly possible? Personally, no, I don't. Um, but then again, I'm, let me preface that. I don't know anything about possession. So I'm talking just from a psychological perspective. Do I think it's likely that he doesn't remember it? There are very, very few disorders that would cause that to be the case. And the public has a, uh, you know, the, the lay public has a, pretty bad misunderstanding about amnesia and how it works. So do I think it's possible? I, I guess it's possible, but it's extremely unlikely. Yeah, I would think it's more of a case of he doesn't want to deal with it. He doesn't want to think about it. And of course, it's possible, and we'll, we'll address that in a bit as well. It's possible that he was aware of this and that this was not a case of actual spiritual attack and that it came from within his mind, in which case you would think he absolutely would have memory of it and a very, very guilty memory at that. I agree. I agree. It's, it's, I, in my mind, it's something he doesn't want to discuss. He doesn't want to relive, but something that is there. All right. Well, moving over to the world of popular culture, of course, 
most people know some of the bare bones of this case via popular culture, i.e. The Exorcist. This uh, is, scariest movie ever. Super, uh, super scary and very well done, very well acted. And, of course, that contributed greatly to how frightening it was. This real-life case inspired William Peter Blatty's 1971 novel, The Exorcist, and William Friedkin's 1973 iconic movie of the same name, starring Ellen Burstyn, poor Linda Blair, always, always from now on, till the day she dies, she's the exorcist girl. <laughs> yes, she is. I feel bad about that. Poor Linda Blair. Uh, also, Max von Sydow and Jason Miller. Blatty's novel changes the victim to a girl, Reagan McNeil, 12 years old, daughter to a famous actress, and moves the location from St. Louis to the Georgetown section of Washington, D.C., where he had gone to college. The girl's mother, a modern sophisticate and atheist, assumes the girl's problems are psychological in nature, likely due to her divorce from the girl's father and his absence. Eventually, a young priest, in the middle of his own crisis of faith due to the death of his mother, is brought in to deal with the sly vulgar, persuasive, possessive, literally, demon. And after an experienced older priest is brought in from the bullpen, a life and death struggle for the girl's life and immortal soul ensues. The film, a faithful adaptation of the novel by Blatty himself, was a sensation, one of the most successful and to this day considered one of the most frightening horror films of all time, due to its relentless depiction of the horrific physical, emotional, and spiritual toll taken on all involved. The film boldly said, this really happened. This could happen to you or your child. Just because the modern world has come to see religious phenomena as dated, maybe even quaint, evil is real and implacable, and only faith can ultimately overcome. How do you feel about that assessment of the film and its, its message? Well, I, I don't believe that the account is real. Um, I do believe evil is real, but that is, you know, from different experiences altogether. I, I mean, in my opinion, given the accounts of Roland Doe as a child and a teenager, it seems really clear that he was pretty attention-seeking and kind of a, a bit of a troublemaker. That's what everybody in his community said after the fact. And he was also an only child. So when his beloved aunt died, Roland may not have known how to cope with that loss. Instead, he may have attempted to focus attention on himself by using her memory and belief in spiritualism. And this worked. And soon he was getting more attention than he knew what to do with. So when it comes to the various proof that was seen by clergy, I'm afraid that all of it, in my mind anyway, can be explained. Reports have indicated that the bed shaking was nothing that a normal, healthy teenage boy couldn't have created. And the word scratched into his skin always appeared when he was not being observed. And they were also never in a place on his body that he himself could not reach. Lastly, Roland appeared to be mimicking Latin words that the priests had already said. Basically, he didn't speak fluently in any language other than his own. So... Ultimately, it seems to me that Roland Doe was deeply troubled. He was an adolescent dealing with grief and perhaps some other issues in a very maladaptive, attention-seeking way. His parents, unfamiliar with the reasons other than spiritual for Roland's erratic behavior, encouraged contact with the clergy in an attempt to eradicate the symptoms, which were likely feigned for secondary gain. So 
Given reports that Roland Doe made a full recovery and became a family man who lived peacefully, it's unlikely that any other more serious psychological diagnoses were present. But do I think that it was a real demonic possession, in my opinion, based on what I've read? No. So you don't buy it? Hmm. I don't buy it. I love the movie, but I don't buy it. The psychologist says no. Under (laughs) what circumstances would you be convinced that it was actual demonic possession? Well, there's a few things I know that cannot happen, right? Like speaking a language that you do not speak and are not familiar with and speaking that fluently. There is no explanation psychologically, neuropsychologically or otherwise that would make that happen. So, you know, if I just busted out with Latin right now or because I don't know it, that might convince me something was up. So that if he truly could speak fluently and in a language he was unfamiliar with, that might convince me if there were, you know, things that appeared on the skin in areas that he himself couldn't reach or that, uh, you know, appeared in front, like in the movie that appeared in front of me. I, heck, I'd leave that one to the priest. Tell you right now, I'd be like, you know what? Nothing I can do here. What about seemingly impossible physical things like hovering in the air or having things tossed about the room with no visible source? You know, I'm pretty good about things like seemingly moving on their own. I'm usually chalking that up to, you know, some some other sort of phenomena. And I have seen patients, many patients, especially in their adolescence, who have what seem to be superhuman strength. Um, it's part of it is the hormones surging in adolescence. I, I actually saw a kid about 17 pick up half of a pool table and knock it on its side, which usually a a pool table of this size, uh, would have taken four men to lift easily. And he himself picked up an entire half of it because he was so angry. So superhuman strength or getting the bed to shake wouldn't do anything for me because I've seen it many times before. Yeah, You'd laugh it off. Ha ha. I laugh in in your face, pseudo demon. (laughs) Well, quite seriously, as far as crazy human strength, we hear pretty often, I don't know how often it really happens, but you hear about mothers lifting cars off of their children. You know, people are able to summon all of their powers. I think that's a big part of it. Usually we just don't use all of our powers because we don't want to injure ourselves. Internally, we know if we absolutely go all out, we're not going to come out of it very well. We're going to be injured. Absolutely right. I, I, I once I remember a psych patient who was getting out of control and I grabbed one arm. We were supposed to put him in restraints because he was getting violent. And I grabbed his arm and he walked around half the unit with me hanging from his bicep. <laughs> that was impressive. I bet he <laughs> dragging I bet, me. <laughs> I bet he had a lot of drinks bought after that. I thought for sure I'm thinking, okay, 130 some pounds. I could, you know, I can at least get an arm. Not so much. So I've seen it happen. I've been there and it's, they are exhausted afterwards. They sleep a long time afterwards, but does it happen fairly regularly? It really does because they're not worried about hurting themselves. Okay. Well, let's look back at pop culture one more time. The movie, the novel, which was a huge hit in and of itself, they really struck a chord and they just became fundamental Imagine we all have that image in our mind of poor, at her worst, Linda Blair as Reagan with her head spinning around and with the green vomit and all the just awful wounds and injuries on herself. That's indelibly printed. Think of the music, Hmm. the film, Tubular Bells, the 
Oh, gosh, I love that music. Yeah, it's very haunting, chilling. And that music, that little melody that we use, that is used to represent anything creepy or supernatural to this very day. Moving on from the first film, there have been, uh, what, three other films, The Exorcist II, The Heretic, The Exorcist Three, and The Exorcist The Beginning. For some reason, right now, in this very day and age, you know, 40 years plus after the film, we've seen another kind of rebirth of it. All kinds of different TV shows. For example, The Exorcist House was a special episode of Ghost Adventures where they literally went back to that home in St. Louis where the exorcisms were performed, or at least some of them. Uh, We also have, right now on Fox, The Exorcist series. Have you been watching that? I have not seen that yet. I have not seen that yet. I want to see it. Tell me about it. I don't know about it. It's quite outstanding, really. It's it's well written. It's extremely well acted. It's very frightening, and it does look at it, looks at the phenomena from both perspectives, from a spiritual and a potentially psychological. Uh, ultimately, it definitely comes down on the side of the supernatural. But you know, it's a TV show. But it's very well done. What it, what it turns out, we learn, and this is a spoiler: the mother of the possessed girl is Reagan. Ooh. Oh, so, my. So she had changed her identity. She got married. She had put that entire life behind her. She'd actually been out of touch with her mother. And all of this comes to the fore when the daughter becomes possessed. And as it turns out, by the same demon. Oh, there's like a there's like a weakness, a family weakness. Exactly. It's passed on. You're absolutely right. There's other iterations, uh, really very well done uh, quasi documentary called The Haunted Boy by the Booth Brothers was just shown again uh, on Destination America. And so this phenomena just doesn't go away. It's it really is the bottom line in terms of. Where are things most dangerous? What is the worst thing that can happen to a human being? Well, in some ways, many, especially those who are religious, would say possession, whether you lose your life or not, but to become actually possessed and to give up your identity and thus your immortal soul is the worst possible thing that could ever happen to a person. I agree. And and I think that it's not that far from mental illness, to be honest. And I, I can understand why people look at it the same way, because when you become psychotic, when you become mentally ill in any capacity, your thoughts don't feel like your own. They do feel like they're coming from outside of yourself because they seem foreign to you and they don't agree with your idea of who you are. And, you know, I think that losing one's mind in whatever capacity can be just as frightening because you feel like you don't have control over your emotions, your thoughts, your actions anymore. Um, so it makes a lot of sense to me that those two things are, you know, intimately correlated throughout history and have been because I, I think the feelings would be similar. So what I'm understanding is it sounds to me like in in fairly extreme cases that for all intents and purposes, the reality of a demon minus the spiritual component, could be summoned from within a troubled mind and become an actual identity within that person's mind. 
that makes sense to me. I, you know, somebody that is searching for some sense of meaning, but that doesn't have a good sense of themselves anymore. That is troubled. That is seeking something. I, you know, I, I have definitely met patients before where I have wondered. And as you know, I'm more of a skeptic than not, but there have been people that have made me wonder because of how they look, how they act, and that seeking out of something greater than themselves because they can't seem to define themselves anymore. The Lineup Podcast is a joint production of The Lineup, America's Most Haunted, and The Criminal Code. Find The Lineup at www.the-line-up.com. America's Most Haunted at America's dash most dash haunted.com and the criminal code at the criminal code.com our theme music is composed and performed by absofacto listen in at absofacto.com stay spooky everybody You're here to perform an exorcism, right? From the producer of Insidious and the Purge. I don't use religious methods. Comes a new kind of exorcism. I go inside the victim's mind. Ah! I evict them from the inside. Incarnate. Rated PG-13. Starts Friday, December 2nd.